Okay, before we look into God's word, I want to pray uh, again. So God, I, God, we believe in your Holy Spirit. Um, we trust the Bible. And we don't say that simply as a flat statement. We do trust the Bible because Jesus trusts the Bible. So we want, we want to hear what you have to say to us. We want to listen to you with our ears, but also with the ears of our heart and the eyes of our heart. So show us, tell us, help us see more of you. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So the phrase for the day is uh, dangerous nonsense. Um, I came across that phrase this week. And actually, this is totally unrelated. It's the name of a punk rock band. But uh, I saw some of their song titles, and you probably don't want to listen to them. Sound a little weird. But uh, so dangerous nonsense. You think about that phrase. So dangerous is like something able to hurt you or harm you. Um, and it usually dangerous usually means somebody's challenging the status quo, the way things are. They're, they're going outside the box, and they're doing something that might, if they're dangerous, hurt or harm people. All right? Nonsense uh, simply means like gibberish, foolish, doesn't make sense. So dangerous nonsense is something that somebody's saying that you think is foolish, gibberish, absurd, that might harm or hurt people, all right? So to help you understand kind of that phrase, if you just think about COVID, and there was this side that believed something about COVID origins and masks, this side that believed something different, both sides accused the other side of dangerous nonsense, right? They're saying things that are dangerous. No matter what side you're on, most people then with, if on the extreme, so the other side was dangerous nonsense. They're saying things that's not true, not factual, and, you know, all the non-untruths on social media and that kind of stuff, disinformation. Or if you go into more into politics, you know, you might, somebody who was, when Reagan was president, they had Reaganomics and then Joe Biden economics, and both sides would maybe say, and even now, each side accused of dangerous nonsense. Um, Climate change, there's sides on that. Dangerous, both sides think the other side is full of dangerous nonsense or spewing forth dangerous nonsense. So you understand what that term means. It usually has a sense of, of a strong feeling toward another point of view. And I'm using that term today because uh, that could very well be the best phrase to describe the reaction that the Apostle Paul got from people uh, on some of his missionary journeys, particularly, particularly I'm talking about the second missionary journey, which is the very cities that Kath and I had a chance to visit recently in Greece. But I read through the passages, and most of this is accounted in Acts 16 to 19. What caught me was the response of people. Some responded and believed in Jesus. The, uh, in Philippi, it says some of the people, God opened their heart. But others, you could categorize all the other responses as people who would accuse Paul of dangerous nonsense. Just like you would accuse somebody of COVID, climate change, or political nonsense you think isn't going to hurt people. So that's the phrase I want you to remember, dangerous nonsense, because we follow a Jesus who also was accused of dangerous nonsense, which means the core of our faith to many people in our world is dangerous nonsense. And I'm not saying this just so you can shore up your defenses, I'm just saying this because that's an accusation we will all bear because that's what Jesus bore, that's what Paul bore. Because the Bible says it's 
that to some it's the gospel is foolishness, to some it's just stupid and it's dangerous. So what the Bible says is the same tr- it's true for us today. All right. So what, what we're going to look at is Paul's dangerous nonsense journey, and I put up there those. These are the, this is Paul's second missionary journey. Um, Paul, if you know, was, was the apostle Paul persecuted Christians, so he was like a very educated Jew. Had this experience, supernatural experience, on the road to Damascus, where he was getting ready to go kill Christians. Jesus appeared to him supernaturally, or spoke to him supernaturally. Paul became like the primary representative of the, of the followers of Jesus, and Jesus said, "You're, I'm going to send you out." So Paul becomes like the the one who was going to spread Christianity. And so uh, just on the map, and I'm, I'm not going to be mappy, and I don't have any pictures from our trip. But you don't need to see those. So that you, You're bored by them. But no, go back again. Go back to this. So uh, on, the far, this is the, on the left is Greece. On the right is the shore of what is now Turkey. And um, so uh, Paul's, Acts 16 and 19, Paul goes Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. So I'm going to go, we're going to, and Acts 16 and 19 go straight through those. And as we were on the trip, uh, and I, even since then, I've been reading through Acts 16 and 19, and some things that caught me about Paul's passion and his mission that really are our passion and our mission. I mean, for life. if you remember, uh, I hope some of you do, during Pentecost, which I extended for like five months, you remember I did a series on Pentecost, and I called it, This is Who We Are. Because I said, we can study the book of Acts, Peter, Philip, um, the church when they were praying, or Ananias when he heard from God. We can look at that as historical, like this is what happened in the early church. Or we can look at that and say, no, this, this is who we are. We are the people of Pentecost. So we're going to look at Paul in the same way. So we're not going to look at Paul as, well, let's look and see what Paul did. Isn't that really neat and exciting? It's more of like looking at our ancestral family tree and say, this is who we are. This is the kind of life we have. This is the kind of passion we have. This is, the, this is, this is in our blood, in a sense. So I want us to think about that way. This, it's not a historical view of Paul, although it's historically accurate. But it's more of, let's look at our family kind of our family tree, these are our people, and this is who we are. So what Paul experienced and Paul's passion is, not much, is no different than our experience could be and our passion could be, all right? So now go to the next map. So I just thought I'd do this. This is, like a, this is from Google Earth. So just to give you a sense, because I know if you're like me, sometimes I'm geographically uh, ignorant. So this is a modern-day map. So Paul's journey started—I'm not going to be up at the map all day either, but it started in Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem. This is modern boundaries and stuff. And he went up through uh, Syria, modern-day Turkey, and then you see Greece in the upper, um, upper left. How many of you—I'm curious. How many of you count steps, have phones that count your steps? I know my wife does. Nobody else counts steps? Nobody's in shape here, right? No, just kidding. This journey for Paul— if you're walking it one way, 500 hours, 1,700 miles, 3 million steps. And that's one thing that I, I, when, you, when you kind of, I would have known this anyway, but when you experience the geography, you're like, wow, this is a long distance to walk. They didn't have public transportation. They didn't have cars. They had horrible roads, and they didn't have good walking shoes. 
So who knows? I mean, just when you think about Paul's journey this whole way through, um, it just it speaks to me of his passion. Like he didn't have to do this, but he, although he would say he felt compelled to. So now I go to the next one. So now we're going to look. So this is also to give you a sense. The state of Indiana, north to south, is kind of like Greece, north to south. I'm just giving you a sense of space. Um, uh, so anyway, so from the northern part, uh, even goes further north and maybe go a little bit further south. But that's kind of the uh, sense of how, how big Greece is. And again, more, giving you that sense more of you just realize the journeys that Paul had. No public transportation, no cars. Uh, I don't even know if they had horses. I, I don't think, well, I don't know if Paul's traveling group would have had horses or anything. So it was walking, so a lot of time. So um, so let me start, leave this slide up there, because I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to equate Indiana with Greece or anything. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start reading just a short passage from Acts 16. And at this point, Paul is in Troas. All right, Troas is modern-day Turkey. At this point, Paul was, up, up until this point, Paul was traveling. There were more than once the Holy Spirit did not let them go where they wanted to go, but instead they had to go here. So they were, they were clearly being directed by the Holy Spirit. Again, not unlike we can be directed by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's who we are. This is his experience and be our experience. So this is the opening of Acts chapter, six, Acts chapter 16. He was traveling with Silas. There might have been a few others with him. Uh, next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia, again, modern-day Turkey, because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at the time. Then, coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go there. So twice, they thought they were doing something, except the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to. So it's like, how does God, Jesus leads us, and maybe there's things you felt like God, that you wanted to do, but God didn't allow you to do. But that was Paul's experience. So this is an unexpected journey he's going on a little bit. So instead, they went through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. So now they're at Troas, kind of not even knowing what's next. Didn't have a plan, didn't have an itinerary, didn't have a strategy, except... We're going to do whatever God tells us to do. Verse 9 of Acts 16, and then we'll look at some things after this. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia. Macedonia is that northern part of Greece. A man from Macedonia, the vision, in northern Greece, was standing there pleading with him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So, we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. And I'm going to use a phrase that I'll use at the end. That This is actually a phrase that the, the speaker for our trip used. Uh, some, follow the prompts. Fa- Paul was following the prompts of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going. He's stopping us from going there. He's stopping us from going there. Then he has a vision. Says that once I knew what we were supposed to do. He was following the prompts of the Holy Spirit. All right. Say that with me. Follow the prompts. Follow the prompts. All right. Follow the prompts of the Holy Spirit in you. And again, Paul wasn't some kind of super-duper spiritual person just like us, and we can follow the prompts of the Holy Spirit throughout our daily lives. We may not be traveling around the world following prompts, but we can follow prompts in our daily lives, all right? So, first city, Philippi. And I want to highlight 
what, what struck me when I was reading through this passage the last few weeks and even the last, even this last week when I was home was this was not easy for Paul. And I think we know that, but it's like following the prompts, following the mission of the Holy Spirit did not guarantee Paul having uh, just a really good travel time kind of thing. Because in every city, I heard one, one, one writer was saying, wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Because Paul was controversial. He preached this message that people thought was dangerous nonsense. So he wasn't walking into people that were uh, somewhat Christianized or Judaized or whatever, and they were, it was dangerous nonsense. So, for example, in Philippi, book of Philippi, uh, the city of Philippi, the first, first European convert was a woman named Lydia. And most people, if you know the Bible much at all, you know, she was a seller of purple. It was like a, fan, it was a really uh, highly demanded uh, color for garments that would set people apart of you having money because you can buy purple stuff. Anybody have purple this morning? I don't know. So she was the, uh, Paul went there and went and said, the Bible says he went down to the river because that's where if, you, if there were Jews in this foreign land, they would often gather to pray at the set times of days Jews would pray, and they would often go to whatever water, body, body of water. So Paul went there thinking he might find some people praying. Lydia was in that group. Paul explained Jesus. The whole me- his whole message was Jesus, and I'll explain more about it later. But he wasn't just talking to talk about let's be better Jews or let's become Christians and go to church on Sunday and vote Republican. He was going there to talk about Jesus. And the Bible says Lydia got opened her heart. And she believed. She then was baptized. She was the first convert in all of Europe. It was Lydia. All right. So, so far, so good for Paul. Then he's ministering there. And it says that as he's ministering there, this young girl was following him who was uh, basically controlled by a demon. This young girl had, through the demon, had the ability to predict people's future. So the, the, the people who owned this young slave girl were making money off her giving fortunes for people. So as Paul's going back to minister, this young woman's following him, yelling out to people, these men will tell you how to be saved. And they kept, yeah, she kept yelling and yelling. And Paul says, Paul finally got exasperated, and he turned around, and he said, in the name of Jesus, you know, we kind of rebuked the demon. The woman, the demon left. Um, no longer make money for her owners. Her owners were mad. They started a riot. They accused Paul of teaching religious practices that we're not supposed to practice in the Roman Empire. Again, dangerous. Paul's dangerous. And these are the phrases I pulled out. Uh, Paul and Silas were grabbed and dragged by the crowd. They were stripped and beaten. First place he goes on his journey, stripped and beaten. The Bible says they were beaten with wooden rods. All right, stripped and beaten with wooden rods. Whenever I read passages like that from the Gospels or from the book of Acts, it just stop and at least think about that for a second. Because I think I grew up in an environment where we didn't cross those things out of the book of Acts, but we seem to kind of gloss over it. But when you read that Paul and Silas were stripped and beaten with wooden rods, then Luke, who, who wrote Acts, says, no, they were severely beaten. So this is Paul's, yeah, he has his first convert in Europe, but then he's severely beaten and stripped, beaten with wooden rods, goes into prison. 
They're putting in, thrown into prison. And this, you might know this story if you grew up in the church. If you don't, I'll tell it anyway. Paul and Silas are in the prison that night, and they are singing hymns. Imagine stripped, you know, they're beaten, so they're probably incredibly sore, probably bleeding, maybe even somewhat semi-conscious, but they decide to sing praises to God. And what happened then, the Bible tells us, is an earthquake, clear senses that God's behind all this, earthquake happens, the prison door swings open, and the guard, the Roman, the Roman guard in Philippi is so distressed because he assumes all the prisoners have escaped and Paul says no we haven't we're all here and the and the guard comes to Paul says what do I do to be saved now in that sense saved the Roman person he wasn't thinking you know saved from my sins their sense was what do I have to do to be rescued from the from the horrors of this world which is kind of what saved means be made whole again be made right with the gods but he didn't know what he was asking he just knew that Paul must have something that was supernatural that he needed. And Paul tells him, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You'll be made whole. You'll be restored to the God of the universe. All right? So in that case, Paul was opposed by pagans who thought he was doing things, who accused him of illegal customs, but they were just mad because they took a slave girl's ability away and they were able to rouse up other people in Philippi. So that's, that's Paul's first experience. Then Paul went to Thessalonica. And actually in Greece they call it Thessaloniki. Because that's the name of the actual wife of a king who named the city after his wife. So I'm going to say Thessalonica because it's easier to say. All right. Acts 17. They get there. Here they're opposed by Jews. There was a synagogue there because there were Jews that were spread out throughout Europe. Teaching about Jesus. Again. Teaching about Jesus, and we don't know exactly. This was 20 years after the life or the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we don't know what kind of news had spread to that part of Europe. Maybe some. Maybe they had heard about this, you know, this cult of Jesus followers. We don't know. But there were people that were rigorous Jews in Thessalonica. And they did not like what Paul was teaching because he was, it was dangerous nonsense to them. Because we, we know our customs, Jewish customs. We, we will live this way. It's kind of like anybody else might say, I know, I know how I'm living my life. I got my own traditions. I, get, I know how I worship God. Don't mess with me. Don't, don't rock my boat. And I think we all can relate to that because Jesus loves to rock our boat. But it's people like, no, this is how it works. Don't rock my boat. So, there, so it talks about troublemakers in Thessalonica. They, they create, they gather a mob, they create a riot. Here's another one of Paul's riots. They couldn't find Paul and Silas. They had been staying at the home of Jason. So what they did was they, they attacked the home of Jason, who apparently was a follower of Jesus, and they dragged him out. And said the scripture says there was turmoil in Thessalonica. So again, Paul comes in. It's not like Paul's like this controversial person by nature, but he's speaking a controversial, dangerously nonsensical gospel that people, because he's messing with the status quo. Status quo is the way things are. And whenever God messes with people's status quo, including my own or your own status quo, we get a little bit flusters us. But in a context of a large cultural situation, there's a lot of anger. So Paul leaves. He's not, he's not, you know, looking for 
pain. So he realized that this is good for me to leave. So he leaves Thessalonica. Then he goes, started sowing down the coast. He goes to a town called Berea. Berea, actually, he was met by Jews there. They, there was Jewish synagogue there who were actually, the Bible says, they were open-minded. They weren't like so stuck in their Jewish traditions, but somehow God had given them an open mind. And as Paul talked to them, because what Paul would do is, Paul didn't have the New Testament, right? The New Testament didn't exist. Paul would talk to them about the Jewish Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament, and he would explain to them why Jesus has to be the Messiah. The whole Bible, the whole Old Testament is talked about. So Paul would, since Paul was a well-educated Jew, he knew the Old Testament probably had large parts of it memorized. He knew it well, and it was like when he had the experience with Jesus, it wasn't like Paul all of a sudden came on to some new religion. It was kind of his, his whole life and religion, all of a sudden the light bulb went on, and he said, no, that's, that's, who the script, that's who Genesis talks about, and Psalms and the prophets, they're talking about Jesus. So that's when he's talking to the people in Berea, that's what he's telling them, look at all this, this is Jesus. And it said that many in Berea uh, accepted it. But remember the crowd in Thessalonica? Somehow, 50 miles away, that same mob in Thessalonica heard what was happening. And they were so enraged by it, they walked, maybe they ran 50 miles to Berea to stir up trouble. And again, you think about what? What kind of anger that must be they were so opposed to the Paul's message about Jesus, they would gather a part of their mob 50 miles, I don't know how long it takes to walk, but a long time, because they want to stop Paul. Because Paul's rocking the boat. He's messing with them, and they don't want that. Don't put this Jesus thing in the mix. We know how we got our lives arranged. Don't mess us up. So Berea, there's, you know, there's... Not a, we don't know if there's a riot, but it says they went up there and stirred up trouble. So Paul had trouble in Philippi, trouble in Thessalonica, trouble in Berea, and then he goes to Athens. Athens, biggest city in Greece today, probably was the biggest city then, kind of the center of you know ancient culture. And Paul starts to talk about Jesus. And again, Athens, as far as we know, he didn't have a lot of interaction with Jewish people there. They would have been people who were totally I'll just say paganized, multiple gods. They had a god for this, a god of, you know, Nike was the god of victory, Aphrodite was the god of love, there was Apollo, all these gods that they believed if they worshiped those gods correctly and appeased them, their life would be good. So don't mess with us how we're worshiping the gods we worship because we want our lives to be good and this is, what, this is how it works in our culture. So Paul goes there and he's, uh, he goes to an area called Mars Hill. It's a mountain, you know, hill area where a lot of people would gather to talk. But Paul was not necessarily engaged in philosophical, philosophical debate. He was actually being kind of interrogated. Because this guy came in and they said, who is, who is this babbler? The actual word there in the Greek is, is the idea for somebody who's just throwing seed out wildly. Like, who is this person who's just throwing out these wild, babbling thoughts? It makes no sense to us. So Paul had to kind of defend himself. He wasn't going to be... They were, they were likely considering whether they should charge him with some kind of crime because he was messing with the status quo. 
He was messing with the way we want our lives to work. So who is this babbler? What's he trying to say? It's, not, it's nonsensical, right? Dangerous nonsense. And then it all says some of, some of them laugh at Paul in contempt. Like, come on. Jesus is the only way? Who is this Jesus? And part of it was, it wasn't just the message about Jesus, but the implication was, if Jesus is who he says he was and he's the Messiah, there becomes this whole new way of living that didn't just affect your habits on Sunday morning. It had a big impact on how the culture would think about money and sex. And all of a sudden, Paul's saying, no, this is Jesus. And Paul wasn't coming to preach a morality, but there was a clear sense was this will change. Following Jesus doesn't just change your Sunday morning habits. We'll go to church instead of synagogue on Saturday. It changes your whole life. It changes how you view your money and what it's for. It changes how you view understanding of sexuality and where it came from and what God's behind all of that. So Paul's, you know, he's a babbler. They're like, we don't, doesn't make any sense to us. He's a crazy man. Um, I think most of us can relate to we don't want people to think we're kind of goofy like we don't want to be laughed at in contempt I mean I, this is a small thing but maybe I can relate to this so I I was on campus early this week and I was I had not because I always cared I had this a big bible with me because it one I need large print sorry I need large print and it had a lot of study notes in it but I always, you know, you always have this concept of people that are carrying big Bibles around in public spaces. So, but I, I wasn't embarrassed by it. I just thought, I don't, I don't want people to think I'm weird, right? So I, I, had it, I had it at a table, and I was getting ready to go get a drink of water, and I thought, this sounds bad, too. Sometimes I'll leave my Bible sitting there so they won't steal my computer. <laughs> like, maybe they'll be convicted. But anyway, but in this case, though, I actually was starting to cover up my Bible. I thought, I don't want people to, and I thought, I'm not going to cover up my Bible. I, I don't care what people think. That, that, you may think that's a small thing, but maybe you can relate to that. You know, I, I, I don't care that people know I have a Bible. Now, it wasn't, wasn't I was afraid of being laughed at in contempt, but I just I didn't want I, well, to. Maybe I, maybe I do care about what people think more than I should. I thought, I don't, I don't care. You know, or when, you know, when, when some people I know who aren't Christian ask me about my trip, I could say it was a religious education trip. It's kind of safe to say, but if I say, no, I was, we're traveling, the, or I was following, and I've said this some people, we were traveling the journeys of one of the early leaders in the church, who was a guy named Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, and as he went through grief talking about Jesus. That's going to get a different response from non-church people than if I just say it was a religious education trip. And I'm only saying that because I think you know the same kind of conversations you have had, and it's easy, and I've said this before, it's easy to talk about God, religion, the Bible. It's even, it's even easy to say Christianity. You start saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, I guarantee you that changes the conversation. You may not even hear it, but the other person, believe me, it changes the conversation when you start talking about Jesus. Christianity, God, Bible, being a moral person, that's somewhat Okay. You start talking about Jesus, and you make people uncomfortable. Now, you don't have to kind of shout it at them or say it in a weird way, but you know what I mean. So that's why I, I always, and I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm just going to encourage everybody, don't just describe yourself to others as a Christian. Describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. 
Because there's two, those are two vastly th- different things in American culture. A Christian can mean all kinds of things. A follower of Jesus kind of has one, one clear sense. All right. So that was, that was Athens. But then the last part, the last place Paul goes before he leaves is Corinth. It's in Acts 8. So this is again, this is Acts 16, 17, and 18. And in Corinth, now Corinth was uh, it's a, it's a port town. It was a town of commerce. It was a town known for sexual decadence, um, a lot of greed, a lot of materialism. Uh, the town of Corinth is kind of down here above Corinth. There's almost like a small mountain. On the top of that small mountain is the temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite, think aphrodisiac. It's about the sex god. And they had temple prostitutes. So this basically temple prostitution, sex god building kind of cast its shadow over the whole city of Philippi. So you can imagine what the culture of Philippi was like. And you can imagine that because that's kind of American culture. Sex is so prevalent. It's just accepted. You see it everywhere. TV, movies, whatever. So, so any man who would climb up that mountain, everybody knew what he was going up there for. But so you, you, just the, the strong sexual decadence of that town. And Paul wasn't, he didn't, he didn't call them out on sexual ethic. He just talked about this man named Jesus and what he came to do and what he was, that he was resurrected from the dead. But they knew intuitively what Paul was saying was, again, rocking the boat, messing with the status quo. Don't, don't change we're going to still worship this god Aphrodite and the god Nike and the god Apollo and all these other gods and goddesses because that's how we keep our world in order. That's how we keep our life in check. We have to appease those gods. We have to live according to their kind of culture. But then the scripture says in Corinth, they opposed him. They insulted him. They accused Paul of teaching in strange ideas, dangerous nonsense, and they couldn't find Paul in a certain situation. So instead of Paul, they found Jesus. And they used the knees, who, was the, who was the leader of the local synagogue, who apparently had decided to follow Jesus, and they beat him instead. So now Paul's ministry wasn't just causing him pain. It was causing someone else. It did, it did earlier with Jason in another town. Now it's Sustenes. Because he was teaching something that was dangerous and nonsensical. Dangerous nonsense. All right? So, question, next question, as I, why? Why did Paul do all this? Was Paul just a lover, a glutton of punishment? Why does Paul do this? Why do any of us step outside our comfort zone as we follow Jesus, let alone talk to somebody about Jesus? Well, Paul says this in some of his letters. He says, I'm compelled. The love of Christ compels me. Like, it wasn't guilt. It wasn't like, well, you should go. You need to go share the gospel with somebody. No, he's I'm compelled by it because he knew how Jesus had changed his life. So he says, the love of God compels me. And then in Philippians, the letter he wrote to the church of Philippi later, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know him. So Paul has this passion is almost not strong enough word. He has this passion that Jesus has kind of captured him. And because of that, he wants to talk about Jesus to people. He, wants, he goes on this mission of dangerous nonsense where he's beaten with rods, he's insulted, he's laughed to contempt, and because of him, some people get beaten. So, but he's compelled. 
I mean, passionate. He's passionate. He's not like checking off the box, I have to do this. You know, it's, he's passionate. So that's, that's kind of the why question. And again, I, I ask myself, as I'm going to ask you to ask yourselves, where's my passion level? Again, this is not about guilt. I've been around environments where people were supposed to share the gospel with. I had a class in seminary. Actually, I took a professor. There were two different classes in evangelism taught by two different professors. One class, in order to get in the class, you had to share the gospel with at least 10 other people during the semester. I didn't want that. It felt like, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad, but it felt like guilt to me. I wanted the class where we only had to share with like two people. All right? But I, you, none of us like the, ever the sense where you feel like this pressure or this guilt to talk about Jesus to people. Paul wasn't talking about pressure or guilt. He was talking about passion. And I'm compelled. I'm compelled to talk about this because of things that God had done in his life and was doing in his life. So now, um, last, last couple things. Next. So this was Paul's message. If you go through all these cities, I didn't go through the rest of Acts, but I'm sure in the rest of Paul's journeys... This is the core of his message that set it apart. So he wasn't talking about being moral, good, uh, religious, um, whatever else. Point number one is, and this is the message today too, Jesus is the one we're all looking for. So he's telling that to the Jews he met on his journey, and that he would say, he would prove them from the Old Testament scripture, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. He's the one who will put your life in a place where you will, I'm putting words in Paul's mouth, but I'm stealing his words from his other letters. You're going to have peace and joy because Jesus is the one, because the Messiah was the one who was going to turn everything right side up again and give us fullness of joy and peace. So he's telling the Jewish people, Jesus is the one you've been looking for. But then he also tells the pagan people, like when he's in Athens, he says, I see that you have this, all these idols, but says Paul was disturbed by all the idols he saw, but there was one that said to, it, to the unknown God. So Paul says to these people in Athens, I see you have an idol to the unknown God. I know who that is. It's Jesus. He's the one you're looking for. So whether he's talking to Jewish people who are looking for the Messiah or the pagan world, or what's called the non-church world of Bloomington, who are looking for some place of hope, and peace and wholeness and people look in all kinds of places whether it's you know I'm, I'm not against therapy or psychology some people think it's going to make them whole it helps but it can't make you whole whole money's not going to make you whole sex isn't going to make you whole so people are looking for what's going to make them whole and Jesus says, I, he, he, Jesus he's the one you're looking for He's going to change your life and bring you all the things you're hoping for that you have deep in your heart. You know something is out there that's supposed to fill your life up. And Paul's basically saying that's, that's a human condition. I mean, think of people you don't know, that you know that maybe aren't even church people. I mean, I think of maybe some students I've had in class or other neighbors. And as far as you know, maybe they're not religious. They wouldn't call themselves a Christian. The Bible's pretty clear, and Paul's kind of clear. Everybody's looking for that person, that thing, that idea, that, that hope. There was a, um, 
the musical uh, Les Miserables, um, the musical about the, you know, um, Victor Hugo, Hugo's book. You guys probably all know that. I don't have to repeat the whole thing. But the, the hero of the, of the musical is Jean Valjean. He was somebody who was in prison and turned his life around. There's some clear spiritual sense in there. And then, and then he becomes the hero because he makes things right. So I was watching uh, a video of like the, might have been the 20th year celebration anniversary of the opening in London. Big theater, you know, big auditorium. All these people who played Jean Valjean, whether it was they played him in, you know, England or there were, they were people from East Asian countries who probably even did play, all over the world. And they are all dressed like Jean Valjean in the, you know, the, the up, upper class of dress of the French in that time. And they were all coming in. Uh, they were all processing with the song. Um, I think it was, Do You Hear the People Sing? Da, 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 whatever that song was. I think it was that one. And all these Jean Valjeans were coming down the aisle. You know, there was Asian, there was African American. There must have been 25 of them. And the crowd was going wild. And I started getting teary eyed watching this, not because I love Jean Valjean, I love the musical. But it, what struck me was these people, they think they're cheering for these 25 different Jean Valjeans. They're cheering for Jesus. They just don't know it. They're cheering for the person, the thing, the idea, in this case, the person that gives them hope for humanity and hope for their own lives. And I remember watching them and I thought, that everybody's cheering for Jesus to show up. They just don't know it's Jesus. And maybe that's part of our responsibility is to put Jesus in that kind of a light. He's not just the one who's going to help you go to heaven after you die. He's the one that will restore hope in your heart, peace and joy that are supernatural that you can't get anywhere else. So the message, part, part one of his message was Jesus is the one you've all been looking for, whether you're religious or not. Part two of the message that Paul said over and over again is God proved this by raising Jesus from the dead. He talked about the resurrection almost everywhere he went. Not almost. He did talk about everywhere he went. Because Jesus wasn't just this cool new philosopher who had great ideas. No, he was raised from the dead. And so this idea of the, a Messiah, the one who we've all been looking for, and he was raised from the dead was totally unique and totally nonsense to a lot of people. Come on. Raised from the dead? So we don't just talk about Jesus. The message of the gospel isn't just Jesus who taught us to forgive our enemies and take care of the poor, et cetera, et cetera. This is Jesus who was resurrected from the dead, who now has power beyond anything humanity's ever imagined. So he's a resurrected Jesus. So our, our message is, and it's not even, Paul never, I thought about this when I was reading this, and Paul never once told, talked about Jesus being born in Bethlehem or even being born a virgin. He believed that. I believe he believed that. But that wasn't his message to people. But he, so all the things, he didn't even talk about Jesus' miracles primarily. He said he was raised from the dead. That was the core of what Paul was telling people. He's the one you've all been looking for. And God proved it to all of us because he raised him from the dead. Because none of the Romans got ever raised from the dead. They were all just mythical gods anyway. So here's my last uh, challenge to you. I said at the beginning, and that's this. Just follow the prompts. I don't know what your prompts have been, will be, 
Paul's prompts where the Holy Spirit said, don't do this. And then he had this vision where a Macedonian man said, will you please come over and help us? Maybe there's prompts that the Holy Spirit has given you or will give you. Might be simple prompts like, hey, go ask your neighbor how they're doing about that situation in their life. Not that you're going to go over there and throw Jesus in their face, but you never know that might come up in a conversation. Or this one person who's, who you sense is kind of asking you about church and religion, keep that conversation going with them. Or maybe it's just, but follow the prompts. You don't know that Jesus might, I mean, John Kensick, the teacher, he's not going to be preaching to his junior high kids. Um, but you never know some of the, you might have a sense of something he's supposed to do for a kid or say to a kid. And, but just follow the prompts. You never know what conversations will happen. And if you do follow the prompts, be ready to be open to the charge of being dangerous and nonsensical. Because that's Jesus. Be open to that. Be ready for that. Don't, don't look for it. Don't stir it up. You don't want to be a jerk so you get people to oppose you. But you will not always be welcome with open arms. Sometimes you will. Lydia, there are people in Berea. They were open to, the God, they were open to Jesus. They believed. But some were like they laughed at him. They beat him with wooden rods. So follow the prompts. Be willing to follow in the footsteps of Paul, who followed in the footsteps of Jesus, into a life that was full of difficulties and challenging and suffering. But I'm sure, I know, we know because Paul said this, he wouldn't trade it for anything because he had a level of joy that he could never experience. It was supernatural because of what he went through. So, um, it's my challenge. Follow the prompts. Um, talk about Jesus whenever you have the chance to. Not in a forced way, but just avoid. Don't talk about religion or Christianity or morality. Talk about Jesus. Um, so, let me pray. So, Jesus, I... Uh, you said, Jesus, that you... Our sheep, we are sheep, we know you and we know your voice. So I pray for every one of us here, who or some hear your voice, whether it's a, a sense that we're supposed to do, or in some cases, Paul, not do certain things because your Holy Spirit is directing us with this inner kind of uh, whisper, or whether it is through a dream or a vision or something supernatural that we're just like, I don't know what to do with this, but I think God's prompting me to do this. God, I just pray that we'd, we would expect the prompting voice for your Holy Spirit. And then would you give us the courage to follow it, even though it might seem a little bit nonsensical. At least in the nonsense way that you are nonsensical, Jesus. Because the world thinks you're foolish. The world thinks you're not wise. But we know you embody wisdom in ways that we all hunger for. So I pray, Jesus, we'd hear you. And we follow you, and um, we want to, just like Paul wanted to see, in this case, the country of Greece transform. We, we want to see our neighborhoods transform. We want to see the city of Bloomington transform because we, your people, and your people all throughout Bloomington, I pray that we follow the prompts. We follow the Holy Spirit. And we ask this on your name. Amen.